You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We interrupt this program with a special bulletin. <laughs> no, that's not That's not even close to it. No, that's it's close. No, it's not. Or do you mean uh, close to the words or close to how he said it? No, that's, that's how you know it's not close. Because <laughs> you asked that question. We interrupt. Yeah, it's... Yeah. You do it. You do it. We interrupt this program for a special method. No, no, you got it wrong. It's, we interrupt this program with a special... I got the words right. <laughs> with a special bulletin. Uh, we interrupt this program for a special bulletin. Close enough. <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. Oh, I bet you've guessed by now which fucking band we're doing this week. <laughs> My name's Marcus Park. And I'm Carolina Hidalgo. Let's get into this, what we think is going to be a four-part series. It's, it might be more. <laughs> I don't know. We might be a Dead Kennedys podcast. <laughs> now, for the most part, we've stayed away from bands with an overt political edge, doing the Stooges instead of the MC5, and setting aside the Clash and the Sex Pistols in favor of the Damned. But that's not because these bands and movements weren't important, or because we don't respect them or like them. Because they were, and we do. Yeah. Personal failings aside. Yeah. Mostly, <laughs> they've got some. They, yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone does, but yeah. Mostly, the reason why we skip these bands because they're frankly, to again take a line from the Stooges, no fun. Mm, yeah. The band we're talking about today, however, took the politics of punk to the next level, making music that it was at the same time serious and ridiculous, angry and fun, and perhaps most importantly, innovative and catchy. Hailing from San Francisco, this band rode the second wave of punk through one of the most tumultuous periods in the city's history, at a time when the husk that San Francisco is now was first being stripped of everything that made it special. The environment in which this band was born was filled with assassinations, the biggest mass suicide slash mass murder of the century, jackbooted police brutality, mass evictions, and Diane fucking Feinstein. Her, her middle name is Emile. <laughs> Emil. <laughs> and that's just what was going on in San Francisco. Oh, you, you forgot uh, uh, there is the Zodiac Killer, uh -huh. the Zebra Killings, and Grateful Dead. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and also out in Santa Cruz, Edmund Kemper and Herbert Mullen. Like, it is a dark time period yeah. for, the, for the Bay, man. And right in the middle of it all were the punks. But it wasn't that the punks in San Francisco started out as a political movement that co-opted a music scene. Instead, it was a music scene that was made political by their environment. Remember, in a lot of ways, punk was not only a rejection of polite American society, but also a rejection of the hippie lifestyle, which bands like the Stooges rightly saw as bullshit right from the beginning, and the MC5 proved was inherently misogynistic in practice. So by the time punk proper started to coalesce from the ashes of the Stooges and the MC5, the people in specifically the San Francisco scene had a front row seat for how the hippie movement's ideas were empty failures. And the city itself, San Francisco, was being looted by politicians who were using the police as their own private army. But concerning the band we're talking about today... They did not take the route of angry preaching like some of the Brit punk bands like Crass did, although there's plenty of preaching here. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Instead, they took a different path and famously asked, what if Crass was funny? Yeah. <laughs> what if? Honestly, that's something to think about is, is because I think uh, one of the members of Crass did say later, like, yeah, I mean, it was a good idea. I mean, we, we do appreciate a lot of the things that we did in the following got, but also, like, we alienated a lot of people. Yeah. To take a concept from John Waters, this band that we're talking about today took good, bad taste to a new level, mixing violently dark humor and an insane name with a musicianship that had not yet, up to that point, been seen in American punk. Of course, the message is highly fucking cynical. But as the old saying goes, behind every cynic is a wounded idealist. And no matter what you think of lead singer Jello Biafra, you can't say he doesn't fucking care. He cares a lot. Yeah, you can't say it. <laughs> He's one of those people, it's like, yeah, people call him an asshole, they call him preachy, they call him whatever. Uh, but he's one of those people that cares so much, he's a dick about it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually... Yeah. <laughs> but born from that cynicism was a sardonic message of dissatisfaction that rings just as true today as it did when it was released 40 years ago. A document of frustration that was a visceral reaction to the world around them. In fact, what did you call it? Frustration. <laughs> yeah. I uh, love that. Once a month I get a I get some frustration <laughs> actually. This band engaged in what Jello Biafra called creative complaining. And their idea was that if you made bringing down the government and anarchy in general fun, then the people will follow. Because as soon as you got the word fun flashing on and off, that's when Americans pay attention. Or so Jello Biafra said. Some call them annoying. Some call them cringy. Some say they went too far too often. And some even partly blame them for the downfall of decency, which we'll probably get to in episode three, I yeah. think. Good old Tipper Gore. <laughs> Still others, mostly useless fucking crust punks, even said that this band became nothing more than a new crop of authority figures by trying to be arbiters of right and wrong. But to us, while we certainly don't agree with everything they said, did, or wrote, and we'll get into all that, the angriest, funniest, most bombastic, and daring punk band of the 80s was Dead Kennedys. If efficiency in progress is ours once more Now that we have the Neutron Bomb It's not so 
It's kill the poor. Yeah. It's, a, <laughs> it's such a funny fucking song. It makes such a good point. Like it's and that's what the Dead Kennedys were all about. Like it is funny, it's fucking brutal, it is something that makes you feel kind of uncomfortable, especially the first time you hear it. I know I was extremely uncomfortable the first time I heard Kill the Poor, you know, but it's and and it's catchy. Yes. <laughs> That's the thing. <laughs> Their songs are catchy. They're so fucking catchy. Our sources today are Dead Kennedy's The Early Years by Alex Ogg and the 33 and a third edition on Fresh Fruit for Rotten Vegetables, which really helps put the Dead Kennedy's first album into the context of the times, because the context of the times are very important to the Dead Kennedy's. In addition to that, we also got Gimme Something Better by Jack Bulware and Silky Tudor, which is an oral history of the San Francisco punk scene. Super fucking cool. Mm -hmm. And we also used the first six issues of the San Francisco punk zine, Search and Destroy, which might be the best punk zine out there, at least at the time. Yeah. And Damage. Yeah. Damage, too. Yeah, yeah. We we luckily we got we got a hold on like a bunch of things just in time. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, and in fact, the the copy of uh, Search and Destroy was a reprint. The first uh, six issues, uh, the copy that you got in the mail was actually uh, signed by most of the people in the San Francisco. Punk I know. Scene. This happens to me all the time. That happened to me with the with the Nightmare of Ecstasy book. Yeah, Ed Wood's uh, the uh, oral history. Of Ed Wood. Yeah, it was yeah. signed by Tim Burton. And then this one, I open it because I buy all my my. Books books you know uh, used books they're always used books from uh you know online thrift shops and stuff like that and i open it up and it's like jello biafra just signed this <laughs> oh look it's ruby ray oh god fail oh god it's insane it's insane no it was uh it was addressed to a guy named enrico uh and we we looked into it a little bit and uh figured out who this enrico was his name was enrico uh chandoha he was a dj at uh the Def Club, yeah. uh, which is a, a venue that we're going to definitely be talking about a lot. Uh, he worked for Search and Destroy. Uh, he was on the early editorial staff of Thrasher Magazine. Uh, and, you know, he uh, and he uh, unfortunately died in, in 1997, near as we can tell, at the age of 45. Yeah. Uh, I have so, a dead man's book. <laughs> you have a lot of dead men. We both have a lot of dead yeah. man's books. <laughs> it feels so real. It's very real. So, yeah, R.I.P. Uh, Enrico yeah. uh, Chandoha. I mean, he's one... Uh, he's, you know, all these scenes that we're talking about, they're not just made up of, you know, the big bands of the day or the managers or anything like that. They're made up of people like Enrico, you know, the the DJs, the the support staff, right. the, the, the staff, the artists. Yeah, he did art for like three different punk compilations, like some Thrasher compilations. He did art for uh, a band that, um, you know, put out a few albums, I think called Poison I Toxic Ideas or talk. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but yeah, he he uh, he's one of those people and yeah remember when we're talking about these stories like they're made up of very real people um that you know have their own have stories of their own so without further ado let's start our journey into the world of dead kennedys with its most well-known member lead singer 
Jello Biafra. Born Eric Boucher in Boulder, Colorado, 1958 to Virginia and Stanley Boucher, Jello, like many members of the Dead Kennedys, was born into a family that treated politics as an essential part of reality that affected everything. While most parents in the 60s shielded their children from horrors like mass death in Vietnam, racial violence in Alabama, and riots in Detroit, Jello's parents discussed everything and explained why the Vietnam War was wrong and why racism was wrong. They shielded him from nothing. But the thing was, his parents' belief in the injustice of particularly Vietnam was born not just from opinion, but also from personal experiences they both had. Yeah, well, Stanley, Eric's dad, or Jello's dad, he was a Korean War vet. Yeah. And so he worked in the psychiatry uh, medic ward there in Korea. And his job was like to sit with dying soldiers with a pen and paper as they dictated their last letters to their family. Like, I mean, if that's not enough of an image of that encapsulates war as hell. <laughs> yeah, I don't know ma- what it is. It's MASH, but not funny. Yes, it's not funny. <laughs> he was in MASH. <laughs> yeah. It's like Stanley would tell Jello, like, the worst day of my life was when I went into the army. And the best day of my life was when I left the army. Yeah. So, like, not like the birth of your three children. <laughs> Dad, Dad, your wedding? War is hell, son. War is hell, War is hell. <laughs> and then Virginia, Jello's mom, she was uh, she was also very well educated. She worked as a librarian at the University, uh, the University of Colorado, where a lot of her students were like desperately trying to avoid the draft. Yeah. Because they were at that perfect age, like by the 1960s. So one of them even actually ran over to their house to hide from getting arrested and unfortunately like jello was the only one home <laughs> he was just a kid wow yeah he had to have been like seven or eight maybe ten like, quick get in my toy box <laughs> quick get in there <laughs> yeah and of course uh you know these experiences that the jello biafra had like if there's one thing that we know about you know the dead kennedy's lyrics and the songs that they ended up later writing you know it was all it all a lot of it came from personal experience a lot of a lot of it came from the world around them so you know jello biafra being in a family that was against the vietnam war and having a mother that was actively helping men avoid the draft inspired songs that were on their first album like the classic when you get drafted yes. Get 
I like the spookiness. Oh, it's super so spooky. You get drafted. <laughs> it's like you're walking in your nightmare. You're looking around, it's all foggy. You're like, oh shit. Oh no. I'm in Cambodia. <laughs> also, I would also uh, recommend looking up the lyrics to Dead Kennedy songs because I don't blame you if you listen to that song and the only thing you understood was, when you get drafted? Yeah, for like 10 years. <laughs> Yeah, and then yeah, you look it up and you de- like there was a lot of thought put into these songs. They're very. I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll get to that later, though. Yeah. Now, around the time Jello turned 13, he got a record player, rejected radio, and discovered all the bands that were the forerunners of punk: the Stooges, the Pink Fairies, Black Sabbath, Thirteenth Floor Elevators, and the funnier, more garage rocky songs of Frank Zappa. And I know Frank Zappa ain't everyone's cup of tea, but this song. Man, if you don't like this song, I don't know what to tell you. The problem is that just as Jello was discovering all this music in the early to mid-70s, the scenes were pretty much all but over. Stooges were over, MC5 were over, the hippie scene had died a whimpering death, and to make matters worse, the biggest rock band in Colorado in the 70s was the fucking Eagles, whom I refuse to play on principle. What principle? <laughs> where, do we, where is it written down? <laughs> Well, the Eagles, they're, they are for me, and, and I say for me, uh, it's like some sort of like fucking Peggy Hill thing. You know, it's, <laughs> it's you know, it, this is not an original opinion, uh, but the Eagles are, they're the personification of the defanging of rock and roll. You know, there's, you know, rock and roll before was, you know, it was dangerous, it was kind of scary, it was dirty, and the Eagles are just such a bland, mealy-mouthed approximation of what rock and roll should be. You know, it's take it easy. Like, But how else are we going to go down the aisles in a grocery store <laughs> without listening to literally easy listening? Well, yeah, it is easy listening, you know, and a lot of guys at that time period, they're like, what was, you know, it's funny how, you know, the Ramones on the East Coast, they're like, yeah, you know, yes, and all of these prog bands, that's what really got us going, and everyone on the West Coast is like, the fucking Eagles! <laughs> it was the fucking Eagles! <laughs> yeah, because they're stuck with them, they're roommates! <laughs> well, like so many other kids, for Jello Biafra, it was seeing the Ramones at a nightclub in Denver that shifted something in his brain. Yes. Oh, gosh. So the Ramones came and he like heard like, oh, God, I I should go. This is something that's kind of important for me to go. So he went and they opened for a band and he was just like, this is it. This is great. 
this is perfect. It's simple. It's kind of funny. I, I kind of think it's kind of funny. I don't know if it's a joke or if it's real. <laughs> are you guys, are you, are you being serious? Yeah, it, it was know? everybody's reaction to the Ramones. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but what he liked about them was the fact that they were just homegrown, like guys with just, you know, silly haircuts and just jeans and a leather jacket. They weren't like all glammed out like we talked about in the Ramones series. They were just regular dudes doing the thing that maybe Jello could do. Yeah. And th- that's what inspired a lot of people around that, that time when they were watching the, the Ramones. And not even, not just that, but Jello was like, so you mean I could just like go backstage and just like hang out with them? And it was like totally one of those like very easy things where you just walk around the curtain and you're like, hey guys. And they're all like, hey. <laughs> So and then like what we're just chatting. You guys aren't like David Bowie that you that you're a god that that are ten feet up above us or uh, above us or anything like that. No, you, you guys are guys who are just regular dudes like me, and and you're doing something really really good and really really cool and original. And I want to do something like that. Yeah, I, I mean that's what the the genius of the Ramones. We talked about it a lot, but the genius of the Ramones was that they were funny. But they were also at the same time taking themselves deadly seriously, <laughs> like very, very like they when you looked at them, like, you know, like, this is a joke, but they look very serious while they're telling that joke. Yeah. You know, and, and that is a, a huge influence on, you know, what the dead Kennedys uh, would later do. Yeah. Like Niles Crane from Frasier. What do you mean like Niles Crane from Flip Frasier? Oh, you should watch that show. I have watched. I have watched Frasier. He takes himself very seriously, <laughs> and it's very funny. It's, I don't know how I compared the two, but I found I found a way to do it. I made I made a connection. But the cool thing though is that they were hanging out with the Ramones, and then uh, they're like, "Yeah, we have nothing to do tomorrow. Uh, we're just gonna go check out your record stores." And they're like, "Hey, you want to do a show? Like, come do a show. Like, do a show. We'll we'll set it up for you. Like, we know everybody. This is a small town." <laughs> yeah. And so the Ramones are like, "Yeah, let's do it." And so the next night they did the show. Like Angela was like oh, super excited about it because he got to go not not only just as an audience member but he got to go as a roadie. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> not for the Ramones. No. So. <laughs> so it was like kind of almost awesome. Yeah. But as a roadie for the Ramones' opening band that they just like cobbled together like the Ravers. Yeah, the Ravers. They were a lot of people call them like the first punk band in Colorado. You know, and they did record a uh, an EP while they were in Colorado on I think like Screwball Records or something like that. Uh, and it was fine, but pretty soon the Ravers moved to New York City. They changed their name to the Nails and they like a lot of other 70s punk bands, they just sort of followed the flow of popular music. And in 1984, they got a minor new wave hit with a song called 88 Lines About 44 Women. Deborah was a Catholic girl. She held out to the bitter end. Carla was a different type. She's the one who put it in. Mary was a black girl, and I was afraid of a girl like that. Susan painted pictures sitting down like the Buddha sat. There were so many fucking new wave songs like that. Yeah. (laughs) That was the thing that the Cramps said, right? They were like, yeah, we saw all these, like, bands that were, like, punk bands, like, like, talking heads and, like, uh, Blondie and then when their album finally came out it was like new wave yeah. and like almost disco like yeah 
I mean, that was, I mean, Blondie was definitely much closer to disco. Yes. That, uh, that, that's the one I meant. Yeah. <laughs> but there, there was so many bands, like, you know, that, what, that reminds me of that song, that da, da, da. Like, it's that. Oh, yeah. There was a period of time in the mid 80s where it was uh, like, ding, 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 like synthesizer like drums and just a guy uh, sounding bored as fuck just saying shit yeah the 90s did that too yeah they did yeah well, well sorry <laughs> sorry so after his short stint as a roadie jello took a trip to england and saw a few punk shows just as the first wave was about halfway through its life cycle taken in shows from the count bishops the saints and an early gig from hardcore front runners wire one two x show time we play wire hell yeah about time we got some fucking wire and they're still great live i saw them at uh was it south street seaport a few years ago one cool thing they did they ended with one two xu and apparently this is something they've been doing at shows for years uh is right before they do it they find like the kid in the front row that's been going fucking nuts the whole time the one who's been singing along to every song and they bring him on stage and let him sing one two xu oh <laughs> how did you do he, I, oh, it wasn't you. It no, wasn't it wasn't. You. No, it oh. wasn't me. No, no, no. This, this is. This was uh, in my thirties. Like after uh, the urge to be right up front dissipated a little bit because my <laughs> knees hurt, my back hurts. <laughs> you might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today. With each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, after the trip to the UK... Jello took the same route as Lux Interior and Poison Ivy, and he enrolled in the easiest school he could find, which happened to be the University of California, Santa Cruz, just outside of San Francisco. Yeah, uh, I, I hope any alumni or students 
who are currently enrolled. Um, just just so you know, Jello Biafra, uh, they do count him as alumni. He was not there for very long. He's there for 10 weeks. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but Jello did say he went there because they they didn't have fraternities, they didn't have sororities, and they didn't have grades. Oh, one of those. So that was perfect. Yeah. That's exactly what he wanted to do. And then he went there to study drama and uh, and the history of Paraguay? Well, it was because they uh, those uh, history of Paraguay was the only thing left because he got that he was he was I mean it's the same reason why I ended up in the shitty dorm with no air conditioning it's because I put it off I kept putting it off and that's how I ended up in Bledsoe <laughs> that can happen it can happen yeah that can yeah. happen yes but yeah he wasn't very happy in Santa Cruz as much as he thought he would be of going like oh I'm finally leaving my hometown I'm finally getting out of here I'm gonna meet new people and he's like no everyone else is kind of the same yeah. Uh, so he would just like hang out in his dorm and he would blast loud music, like super loud, like like Sex Pistols, like Anarchy in the UK that come out. Yeah, this is 1977. Yeah, absolutely. And and then it was like that time when he was listening to Sex Pistols over and over again. And then he realized it's time. It is time to cut my hair. Yeah, fuck this. Yeah. The, the hippie life was over. It's run its course. Now it's time. So he just took out some scissors and just... Gave himself a haircut. <laughs> I'm sure it looked great. <laughs> and then he put all the hair clippings inside like a Ziploc bag and just nailed it to the, his dorm door. Hell yeah. Because I, he enjoys symbolism. <laughs> <laughs> if there's one thing he enjoys, it's a look at my hair. Boy, does anyone get this? <laughs> oh, you don't? Mm. <laughs> oh, this makes me angry. <laughs> And he started, like, expanding his wardrobe, you know, like, wearing, like, spray-painted shirts that he would make or burning holes in the shirt. Like, very Richard Hell, but, yeah. like, taking it a step further. Like, he had a shirt that had, like, what, what he made, like, a bullet wound around what was over his heart, mm -hmm. uh, just bleeding all the way down. And he would just walk around, uh, walk around like that. No, I mean, my favorite that was, was cool. is that he used, what, what did he use, like, guacamole to make it look like vomit? Sausage. <laughs> he used, like, a chorizo sausage, and he just plastered it on his shirt and he's like it looked exactly like vomit i'm it, like it might have been vomit good for him yeah i mean it's uh, from what he uh, i read he, he says that everyone called him punk rock eric yeah he was that guy you know like yeah everybody gets those nicknames i was called radio marcus in college that but, makes perfect sense ooh, it was all i talked about <laughs> <laughs> but even though jello only lasted a paltry 10 weeks at uc santa cruz the little time he did spend was enough to make it to san francisco to get a taste of the first wave of San Francisco punk. For an example, let's listen to early San Francisco punk band Crime. Crime! 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 With their song, You're So Repulsive. <laughs> <laughs> Back up, I'm the 
five. They had so many great song titles, like fucking Piss on Your Dog, <laughs> I Stupid Anyway, Murder <laughs> by Guitar, Fly Eater, Rockabilly Drugstore, Dillinger's Brain, Emergency Music Ward. It's such a fun band. They were so much fun. They really should have made it. Yeah. They really should. I mean, okay, so we got to get into the San Francisco punk scene or at least right there at the beginning like almost a proto-punk at the very very beginning uh it is debatable of course because a lot of people are like no we were first yeah and oh we were first it's every fucking scene (laughs) (laughs) it's all within the same few months yeah it really is yeah it's so close together where it, it really doesn't matter all that much yeah but we can start with mary monday yeah mary monday she was a topless dancer she came down from canada and uh she she put on these shows uh mary monday and the bitches hell yeah and and uh, released a very, very early punk single called I Gave My Punk Jacket to Ricky. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's a little, it's it's fine. Well, it's good. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll kind of get into the, all the San Francisco punk singles and all that shit here in a second. But yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, there was crime. Yeah. And the nuts. And crime uh, that we just listened to, like their shtick was like a lot of fun. Like they would wear uniforms, like uh, the police uniforms. They would actually get them at the same store that the policemen do. Yeah. So it was actually a policeman uniform <laughs> that they would wear sometimes. Or, you know, they would put on fedoras and wear suits and like they would be mob bosses or they would be detectives. Like uh, they had oh, a Oh, I get it. Crime theme. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> crime. Okay. Welcome yeah. aboard. <laughs> <laughs> and their show was very exciting. It was like theatrical. You know, like the stage would be all black right before it starts. And then suddenly like sirens would go off. They probably got it at the same store. Yeah. And then they and then they would come in with their policeman uniforms and they just start playing all this crazy loud rock music, like super, super loud. And it was just exciting. It's it, exciting. Yeah. And- and very theatrical, uh, and that was a, that's a hallmark of the San Francisco punk scene is like very very theatrical at all times, but theatrical with a point. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, most of them. Most of them. <laughs> <laughs> not not all of them, but you know, but there was there was some thought behind a lot of what the San Francisco punk scene did. It was a very smart scene. Yeah. Or like the nuns. Uh, the nuns actually started with uh, two film students, like Alejandro Escovedo and uh, Jeff Ulner. They started making a film about a rock star and, and, and a band, kind of like a Spinal Tap kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they just started to realize like, oh, we're putting this band together. We're making this music for this film that we're trying to do uh, for our school. And it turns out, uh, I, actually, the band is a better idea. <laughs> <laughs> so they just became the nuts. Hell yeah. <laughs> And then they called up Jennifer Miro, of course, and asked her to sing in the band. And then that's how they kind of coalesced together. Like the beginning of The Nuns, you could really see some like really, really cool raw stuff. And then, oh, and don't forget the Ramones came. Yes. They came to San Francisco. They played, uh, it was like August of 1976 at the Savoy Tivoli. And everyone who went to those shows were members of these bands. I'm talking about like nuns, uh, crime. And uh, I mean, they were just starting out. Like they've been around for a few months. uh, And then they just decided to come to Ramon's show. They're like, okay, we've heard about this. Of course, this has been going around like crazy. And they all just stared and watched the show just like Jello Biafra did. It was like, that's it. Yeah. That's perfect. That's great. That's why they call the Ramones the fucking Johnny Appleseeds of fucking punk rock. Yeah. Because everywhere they went, scenes sprouted up. Because everywhere they went, people looked at them and said, I can fucking do that. Like, not only I can fucking do that, but like, this is cool. I want to do that. 
yeah, that's what it is. Like Danny Furious, he called up his friend Greg and told him all about the Ramon show he was at. He was like, there's only like a few dozen people there. Like no one knows about this, but this is great. So hear me out. I think we need to start a band, Greg. And Greg's like, yeah, let's. And then they got Penelope Houston and... And that's how the Avengers started. The Avengers. Yes, they're so good. They're fucking great. Check it out. This is We Are The One. with a point yeah now the unfortunate thing about the san francisco punk scene is that a lot of them didn't get to record albums until later in their career much later in their career and by the time they did like the previously played nails the sound had totally changed in other cases the bands recorded after the original scene had sort of come and gone and the energy that sometimes needed from a scene to supercharge specifically a debut album was no longer there to draw upon Dead Kennedys, they were able to draw upon it. Other bands, like the Just Played Avengers, managed to release an EP in 1977, but only released an album after they already broke up. So, what you're left with is a lot of short documents of the era, singles and such, but none had the magic of Dead Kennedys. Of course, the Dead Kennedys got very lucky, and we'll talk about that next episode. Now, if you were looking for a place to see punk rock in San Francisco in 1977, there were a few places you could go, but the venue that would play an outsized role in the scene to come was a Filipino restaurant called Mabuhe Gardens. Mabuhe, Mabuhay. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> You've watched the interview. Some people say Mabuhe, some people say Mabuhay, some people it's say- It's a Filipino th- greeting. Yeah. Mabu, yeah. Mabuhay. Mabuhay. Hey, that, oh, that's fun. Actually, it does sound fun. Yeah, in other words, don't give a shit. It's a, everyone says it's different. <laughs> everyone says it's different. But yeah, the Mabuhay, they, they, it started developing a scene around the 70s when the owner, Ness Aquino, he started to book late night cabaret acts for like his clientele who wanted to maybe have a drink after dinner time. Because as you said, it was a restaurant. But he was, he was thinking like, Maybe uh, music, dancing, comedy acts. Like, let's do this. Let's keep this open a a little bit longer. Like, make some more money. Yeah. So Mary Monday started her Monday nights, which is, uh, I think, by accident. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, her name's Mary Monday. Put her on Monday. It's perfect. (laughs) And she put together, like, wild shows. Like, they were fun and spontaneous. Like, you never know what would happen. Like, people just standing on tables, people throwing shit, people running on stage. It's like... 
what whatever goes happens it, it it just didn't matter it was all fun and it was all crazy it was all right and like you know it even got people like Iggy Pop David Bowie and Blondie like to show up and see like what is this thing that's going on cool and then Dirk Dirksen came I don't think that's a real name <laughs> it might be it, it might be it might be uh, it might be I've had people ask me if Marcus Parks is a real fucking name <laughs> like yes is my fucking birth name <laughs> so Dirk Dirksen yeah really? From from the what the the, the California Dirksen. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Dirk he came to San Francisco from L.A. and by 1977 he was booking the acts for the Mabuhay seven nights a week. Like he continued to book a lot of cabaret acts, like the Nicolettes, like kind of sort of uh, the same style as like uh, we talked about the co- uh, the Cockettes a little bit. Yeah, Cockettes. We talked about them in the Stooges series. They were a big part of the early punk scene. You know, just around. They were just fucking around. They introduced Iggy Pop to heroin. They're, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it, it's like a bunch of people, almost like a theater group, uh, just costume sketches, skits, uh, musical review, jokes, ad libs, uh, you know, so a very, very gay friendly uh, drag shows, that, that kind of thing, like an anything goes kind of performance. Uh, but also a lot of these these new newer bands like Nuns and, uh, and Crime, uh, they were also getting booked. Uh, pretty much a little bit before Dirk came on the scene, but then they started getting booked a lot more and they started getting more of a following. And so Dirk would host these shows and put these uh, bands on. They would put on nuns and in crime and stuff like that. And he would have this habit of just like being really angry. <laughs> he would berate everyone, especially the acts. Yeah, he was the uh, he was the stereotype of the asshole music industry guy. Yes. Like not not like the exec or anything, but just like the guy who's like artists are scum. <laughs> like you got like you got to fucking you got to treat them like shit and let them know this shit. Otherwise, they'll walk all over you. Well, I mean, he doesn't really. He actually, he doesn't say that. No, he doesn't say that. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, the reason why he decided to take on that kind of quote unquote persona <laughs> was because the audience would. Be getting rowdy with all this craziness that was having on stage, and he's just like, you know what? I gotta direct the attention, all the aggression towards me instead of the acts. So they would sit down and listen, or at least rock out to it. So I would go up and be like, "This next loser uh, <laughs> coming up, you know, like you know, fuck your mother." I don't know. <laughs> I'm not great at insults. I'm not. You're a very nice person. I'm not good at improvising. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, he would. Uh, berate the audience you berate the acts like so that way all the aggression would go towards him and then people would actually pipe down and like check out the show and yeah. enjoy the show yeah no no don't get me wrong he wasn't a bad person he was a, he loved his artists <laughs> <laughs> or did he or did he well there was a lot of controversy I don't want to get into the politics of something that I wasn't even around for but uh, there was a lot of politics it's like where's the money Where's the money, Lebowski? All that yeah. bullshit. But anyway, let, let, let's move on. Let's yeah. move on. Yeah, let's, he was a, a venue owner of a small punk venue in, or a venue manager of a small punk venue in San Francisco in the 70s. It's going to be some shadiness. Yeah, but he's he's like totally all about like, let's make the scene kind of happen. Like, yeah. You know, I mean, that Steve Martin already moved out. Mm-hmm. We, we need to get uh, more acts in, like uh, comedy acts. Uh, oh, punk acts. Yeah. Actually, like more people are showing up to these things. They, they're thinking they're a little bit cooler a little more fun a little more uh uh louder and and not just that uh it's less theater and more just watching these great shows where you can 
like almost participate in like they they pushed all the tables and chairs back uh no no more just sitting there and just like applauding politely it's like no you could be part of it put on your crazy outfit and start dancing yeah and the stage at mabuhe i mean it was what maybe like a foot above the re- everyone else like, and the the audience was right there yeah. next to because there's so much footage on YouTube of shows at, at Mabuhay. Uh so it's it it really is like that sort of show. it's even more DIY even more intimate than like CBGB was. Yeah. Uh, it was everyone was right there next to the fucking artists. Oh yeah, no, they mixed in together the audience with the performers. You're performing, you're doing great and then you go right back into the audience. It it just it could switch at any moment because it was just it was free for all. It was fun. Yeah. So one night in the fall of 1977, Jello Biafra went to Mabuhe for the first time with his friend Mike Ellis. There, Mike ran into a guy he went to high school with named Russell Wilkinson, who would later take on the name Will Shatter as the lead singer of Negative Trend. It's like fucking typo negative fronted by Jonathan Richmond. All right. Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty, yeah, it, it's pretty good. Yeah, it, but it, it is, you know, Negative Trends, another one of those bands where it, it's not the best recording. You know, it's kind of sloppy. It's not super tight. The production is not great. But hey, we got it. Yeah. No one has any money right now. <laughs> Everyone's like 19. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a, that was from uh, 1978. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so when Jello started college in the fall of 1977, yeah, he definitely decided to hit the Mabuhe because he heard it was happening. So as you said, like him and Mike Ellis, they go, they pick a Friday night, they pay the cover charge, and they walk in and they realize it's metal night. <laughs> yeah, and we're not talking like sweet ass like black metal. Like this is 1978 metal. It's yeah, different this is thing. A cheesy metal. Yeah. Uh, or uh, as Jello says, 70s dinosaur metal. Yeah, it's not Venom. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Although Jello did show up wearing like a leopard bathrobe. Yeah. That his mom made him. Oh. Because he wanted to look different and cool. Man, what is it with these punk guys and their moms making them outfits? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Jello and, and Mike, they're like, fuck it. Let's, we're, we're here. Let's hang out. And then, as you said, he runs into Will Shatter. And then Will asks Jello, he's like, hey, are you in a band? And Jello said, like, no, I just, I, I don't know how to play, really. I'm pretty bad at guitar. And Will's like, who cares, man? I've been playing for three days in, <laughs> as the bassist in a band. Actually, we're playing tomorrow night. We're called Grand Mall, and we're opening for the Avengers. You should come by. 
Cool. So, yeah, exactly. Jello went to go see the show the next time and realized, huh, they do sound like they've been playing for three days. <laughs> that is actually very accurate. I couldn't imagine stuck playing a live show three days after three picking days. up bass. That's the best thing. It's like, just do it. Yeah, just do it. Yeah, and eventually you'll get good enough. <laughs> yeah, and Jello did become pals with them. You know, the, the singer for uh, Grand Mall was Don Vinyl, who started The Offs, and uh, Will Shatter and Craig Gray, they started Negative Trend. Yeah. So right around the time that midterms were over, or near as we can tell, Jello returned to Boulder. He had enough of UC Santa Cruz. There, he worked at a nursing home washing soiled laundry and saw ridiculously dark behavior from the orderlies who would trade in items stolen from elderly residents. It's the fucking bottom of the barrel, oh. man. But perhaps inspired by the punk scene he'd briefly been exposed to, and knowing he was going to return to that scene, Biafra also began writing some of the most well-known songs of the Dead Kennedys catalog, all while delivering pizzas to spoiled rich kids at the University of Colorado, in addition to the nursing home job. But we'll get to those songs next time. Yeah, we have to get to those songs later. (laughs) The next episode, because we didn't realize that we have to spend a lot of time on the West Coast punk scene, which is very important. It's Actually, extremely super important. Super instrumental to what we're trying to talk about. Uh, but yeah, the yeah. Uh, if if you're wondering if uh, there's any dinosaurs in our Jurassic Park, <laughs> do you plan on having dinosaurs yeah. in your dinosaur tour? Yes. <laughs> uh, they, they, they will come. It's like the day. They will come and they will get you. <laughs> yeah, it's like the damn series. Like the, this is our first dip into the West Coast scene, really. Uh, so we want to give everybody their due. Well, actually, we're dipping our toe in it right now. <laughs> we have a few. We just did a few bands. Yeah, but yeah. we're going to work our way through it. Of course. While Jello was back in Boulder making enough money to return to San Francisco, the Sex Pistols played their last ever show at Winterland Ballroom in the city. And just about every punk band in town at the time was involved in some way or another. Yeah, like Danny Furious, I told you about the drummer for the Avengers. Uh, He got a call from Howie Klein asking like, hey, uh, can your band open for the Sex Pistols? And they're like, yeah, of course. And then Howie Klein's like, great, uh, you're going to get paid 100 bucks. And they're like, what? (laughs) Okay, fine. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Maybe people will remember this show in 50 years. Yeah. And then Bill Graham, who ran the Winterland, uh, he was like the concert promoter, he called Crime and asked them if they wanted to open for the Sex Pistols. And they said, yes, absolutely. But then they said, hey, actually, uh, Malcolm McLaurin's uh, met the Avengers. Uh, they really enjoy them. So you know what? We're going to give you a, the second slot. And then, uh, Crime, you, you'll go on after the Avengers. And Crime is like, what? <laughs> Uh-uh, we, we're not opening for the Avengers. The Avengers open for us. Yeah. You know, and Crime felt like they had seniority because they were a band before the Avengers by six months. <laughs> well, that was a big problem in the San Francisco. That's a, another huge problem in the San Francisco scene that people kept saying over and over again. It's like, yeah, we were a big deal locally, but we just kept shooting ourselves in the foot over and over again. Sometimes when you're within the same kind of smaller kind of scene and you take yourselves... Uh, very very seriously I mean it's important to take yourself seriously but to them it was very uh, uh, they had this kind of weird uh, competition of like who's gonna make it on top when it was more like you guys should band together yeah I mean that's that is the one thing about small scenes they either band together or they eat each other right Uh, and in San Francisco happened more often than not that they fucking 
ate each other and lost the forest, you know, lost sight of the forest for the trees. Yeah. Well, so the the lineup for for that opening slot was like the nuns were going to go on first and then the Avengers was second and then, you know, the Sex Pistols movie thing and uh, maybe another band and then the and then Sex Pistols, right? So it was all set up and ready to go. But you see there was more pettiness. <laughs> That continued because the pettiness was between Malcolm McLaurin, you know, the Sex Pistols manager and Bill Graham. Well, I told you the, the venue promoter. Uh, so Malcolm wanted to run things his way. And Bill said, no, this is my town, my venue. So to be a dick, this is the story on how dreams are crushed. <laughs> you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Crush those motherfuckers. All right. This uh, this part is according to Howie Klein, right? Uh, Malcolm McLaurin went over to Howie and asked, Who's the worst band in the scene? And Howie said immediately, negative trend. (laughs) Oh, yeah, negative trend. Yeah, they're fucking awful. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened. Malcolm's like, are they god-awful? He's absolutely god-awful. Can they play? No, not at all. Okay, can you find them for me? (laughs) That's what happened. Malcolm then goes to Bill Graham and says, hey, we want negative trend on the bill. We want them featured in front of 6,000 people at your Winterland venue. (laughs) Graham's like, what? Well, you wanted the worst band in San Francisco to open for the Sex Pistols to make the Sex Pistols look better. And, and to piss off Bill Graham. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what he said. Like, Malcolm McLaren's like, the Sex Pistols don't play unless Negative Trend plays. <laughs> and Bill said, fine, but they're going on after the Sex Pistols. And Malcolm said, fine. <laughs> More petty bullshit. And these poor fucking kids are stuck in the middle of all this. In later years, Roz uh, Rezebeck, uh, the lead singer of Negative Trend, said, the thing is, we were the worst band in San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) So the show goes on. The nuns went on. Then the Avengers went on. And Penelope Houston from the Avengers, she like definitely slipped on a big, uh, big like loogie glob thing because they were still gobbing. Yeah. And so they had to like stand back as they performed. And Penelope did that thing like when you first go on stage in front of 6,000 people, like her voice shakes just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then she finally gets more confident as the show goes on. Like that happens to me all the time. Oh, yeah. That still happens to me too. Yeah. But she pulled it off. Like the Avengers did great. And the Sex Pistols, when they went on, they kind of died a little inside. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't because of the opening bands. It's just that they just. They knew it was over. They it was were coming the to the end. Yeah, yeah, it was the end. The infamous, you ever feel like you've been cheated. Yeah. Exactly. Paul Cook, Steve Jones trying their best, even though they were sick. Sid Vicious was fucking up on his base if he was playing at all. Mm-hmm. If he was even plugged in. The sound was horrible. You could barely understand him. They had very thick accents. Yeah. Johnny Rotten just doing whatever he could, but he just wasn't feeling it anymore. He ended the show singing the lyrics of no fun and actually meaning it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the last thing I did, did you ever feel like you've been cheated? Like that was the end at the end for the Sex Pistols. He, they announced their breakup just a couple of days later. And then there was negative trend after that. <laughs> <laughs> All of that. And then negative trend goes on. Negative trend. It's your turn. <laughs> on deck, buddy. But of course, everyone left. That's yeah. the thing. Negative trend is backstage. And they're like the guy with the drumsticks. And they're all sitting on the couch together trying to have a beer. And they're like, wow, I, I hear a lot of people coming and going. It should be exciting. Oh, mostly going. Yeah. Because everyone left. Everyone left. And they're also like tearing down all these news crews or tearing down all of their fucking equipment because Sex Pistols back then, Sex Pistols coming to town was big news. It was a great, you know, midway segment on uh, on the evening news. Yeah. Uh, so nobody pays attention to negative trend. But hey, they still fucking went on. 
No, they didn't. Oh, they didn't. No, they were led onto the stage. The lights were on. Their instruments were gone. And then the crew from the Winterland venue said, you're on. <laughs> and they're like, but there's nothing There's nothing here. And then there's maybe a couple dozen people. Those are my friends. Yeah. Hi. Those are my friends over there. Uh, we can't play. So you know what? They they went backstage. They were really pissed off. They started breaking everything in sight. They they, they ruined everything. They yeah. broke everything down. They they couldn't help it. They were, they were just so mad. And then some of them was like, let's just go hang out with Sid Vicious, which they did. Uh, where That's where Sid Vicious uh, shot up heroin and, and OD'd uh, and was very sick for a few days. But... Roz, the, the as I said, the lead singer of Negative Trend, he says that he doesn't remember after that until a couple days later, he woke up on the beach with chapped lips. Hey. <laughs> so it must have been a crazy time. I do been. The one good tiny shining spot of the whole thing was the fact that uh, Rory Johnston, uh, the, uh, the touring manager for the Sex Pistols, really liked the Avengers. And Steve Jones actually produced a single for them later. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> At least. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting about the underground press's reaction to the punk rock scene was that they were, for the most part, unwilling to give the punks the same respect they'd given the hippies, mostly because that press was made up of said hippies. But, as, again, John Waters recently said in an interview about fashion, but it still applies here, if you really want to start a revolution, you don't get on the nerves of your parents. You get on the nerves of the hip people three years older than you. And when it came to San Francisco in the 70s, the punks were definitely getting on the nerves of the hippies who'd let everything slip away just a few years earlier when they all made the collective decision to mellow out. Or to take it easy. easy. <laughs> <laughs> but the vast majority of the annoyance to come came from the dead Kennedys. And it was all started through a single want ad posted by the future guitarist, Raymond John Pepperell, who would eventually be known as East Bay Ray. Now, music-wise, Ray grew up on his dad's Muddy Waters and Lightning Hopkins records, along with his mom's Pete Seeger. But what made him want to pick up a guitar was seeing Pink Floyd at Winterland, same venue we were just talking about, in 1970. Cool. That would have been so cool. Oh yeah, and this is early Pink Floyd, too. Ooh. Absolutely hear that influence. Yeah. Yeah. Now, being from Oakland, East Bay Ray naturally gravitated toward the punk scene in San Francisco and got his first taste of West Coast punk when he saw the weirdos at Mabuhay Gardens in the spring of 1978. And here's where we're gonna we're getting into the LA scene. Oh yay! Bump to Bob tonight. 
super fucking cool. I know. I was going to say, how much fun are the weirdos? I love the weirdos, man. So I, I, I never really listened to them a whole lot before uh, this show because I didn't just didn't know a whole lot about the L.A. scene. But, man, I've been getting into them. They're fucking great. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And they would come from L.A. to perform all the time in San Francisco, which is how East Bay Ray gets, got to see this. You know, they had, uh, we got the new Trump bomb song, yeah. which is very catchy. Very fun. <laughs> yeah, we, we played that song, I think, in our Damned series. But, yeah, new, we got the new Trump bomb. It's so fucking catchy. And the weirdos just have so many catchy songs. They're really fun. Yeah, th- that really what it is about them. Like, they're fun. Like, they looked fun. They dressed in white leather belts and metal chains around their necks and, and waist and, and spray-painted clothes with stage and like they would have pins and tape it they look like a cool trash collage <laughs> really if you really look at it yeah they really do but they pulled it off yeah they did <laughs> and they were huge in la at the time the weirdos and the screamers now the screamers are awesome whoa <laughs> not conventional no not at all no. if you if you like it, it if you like suicide you love this you're gonna love the screamers yeah no guitars no bass but keyboard synthesizers and a, and a drummer with tomato Duplanty as a frontman doing his thing with his hair spiked all the way up oh man so when they came to la you know the the screamers when they came to la they were older than a lot of the kids in the scene they had a lot more experience with underground performance like art music comedy on the east and west coast and they seemed to know everybody yeah that was a crazy thing like they had so many connections i mean they they were like uh they had that house the wilton hilton which was like the place to be. Yeah. And when they got there, they set up shop and everything. People started coming in and out. I mean, they showed the damned around when they went to to the West Coast. What we talked about, remember? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it was. And, and they, they were kind of like this, like their their music was something like no one else had heard before. So it wasn't just that they looked cool and they were cool and they were able to kind of mature a little bit more than than these 19-year-old, 18-year-old kids. Uh, it's just the fact that their music was something like that no one else had been doing at that time. No, they really hadn't. I mean, it's like uh, their music, it's, it's like Devo by way of suicide uh, with, you know, the best punk rock singing of the time. But the tragedy of the Screamers uh, is they didn't record anything yeah that's why they're called the best unrecorded band in the history of rock and roll <laughs> but well by the by the dead kennedys that's what they said that was a huge inspiration and uh, they gave him that award yeah henry rollins also said the same things that the screamers were the best band that they never recorded an album an ep a single nothing but there was so much like uh, there was so much hype around them include especially with their shows like kid congo from the cramps he immediately became president of their fan club. Yeah. I mean, he stayed at the Wilton Hilton. <laughs> and I mean, the Psychedelic Jungle, when they're all hanging out, that cover uh, that we talked about a few weeks ago, that is at the Wilton Hilton. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. Yeah. I Actually, I didn't either until they're like recently. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the thing is that the Screamers never recorded uh, an album or an EP. They never went into the studio, but there is a fair amount of live recordings from the screamers which are now you know which before were so rare as to be they were so rare they might as well not fucking exist but you know hey it's 2020 we've got the internet we've got youtube so we can actually hear this shit uh this uh is a recording of the screamers live at mabuhe gardens in 1978 with their song 122 hours of fear Thank you. 
Be quiet or be killed. <laughs> I love their story. I hope when maybe one day we can do like a mini thing about them because I, I mean, their story is just so amazing and like how far they've gone and you know coming to LA as the Tupperwares <laughs> until the Tupperware company complained. They're like, fine, we're the screamers because that's what we do. And there's just so much to it. Like I hope we talk about it more later. Yeah, I, I think we might do like a mini episode on the the screamers coming up because it's just more the- work. More <laughs> work. <laughs> yeah, the screamers just uh, it, it's I I have such a enormous respect for them. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today. With each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican, and I'm Phil Bradison, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast. You might be right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, going off the inspiration from the weirdos, plus the pistols and the Ramones, East Bay Ray. Let's get back to East Bay Ray. All right. East Bay Ray decided to start his own punk band. Although, to start with... His only goal was to have the best punk band in San Francisco. That's it. That That's, was it. Do I ask for too much? No. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Ray, he, like Jello Biafra, his parents were very political, like, r- growing up. Like, his parents were, like, they worked in, you know, like, a lot of, like, civil rights uh, type of jobs. Like, where they g- went against redlining. They went against uh, blockbusting. Like, he grew up in a... Uh, he grew up in a very political household. All these guys did. And Ray, he wasn't setting out to start a political punk band. He was more of what Jello Biafra disparagingly calls a Clinton Democrat. Uh, <laughs> that's quietly. That's nothing. I get it. <laughs> I get what he means. The first person to respond to the ad, though, was the highly political Jello Biafra, who had just returned to San Francisco. Jello essentially got the job because he showed up on time where the other guy who answered the ad didn't. And that set the tone for a band that after that always prided itself on punctuality and work ethic, which set the Dead Kennedys apart from most of the other bands in the scene. That has been so important with everything that we have talked about. <laughs> like, remember The Damned? Yeah. They asked Sid Vicious, but Dave Vanian showed up? Yeah. I mean, it's all about... It's really about showing up. It's just and about on showing up. Time. Yes. <laughs> that is all. You have one job. On time and sober. Oh, well, well that's that... <laughs> hard. That's you're asking way too much. Well, I mean the the Dead Kennedys, you know, that they say over and over again, we got lucky and you know, everyone else in the scene's like, Yeah, the Dead Kennedys got lucky. But you know, man, I know I've said it before, but it 
works out so much and especially the entertainment business music whatever the luck is when preparation meets opportunity yeah and the fucking the dead kennedys were always ready to go no matter what after jello came jeffrey lyle aka klaus fluoride who would eventually become the bass player now klaus was 10 years older than everyone else and had been in the music business long before joining up with ray and jello running pirate radio stations and playing in bands with names like magic terry and the universe they were actually pretty good (laughs) magic terry actually did pretty good i mean they were part of both the warhol scene in new york city and a part of the early max's kansas city scene i mean those scenes were kind of interchangeable yeah yeah yeah. exactly they were probably all in the same place pretty much yeah but magic terry in the universe like they they almost made it so close they were so close they were supposed to play with the velvet underground it was supposed to like all work out for them they were opening for 10 years after they were doing like a foreign date thing 10 years after it it, it was was still good it was still good it's a gig yeah yeah, gig's a gig and and they were gonna gonna do great things and then terry mooned the audience on the first night and were kicked out (laughs) and like you know lou reed andy warhol they're all like sitting there being like i think these guys are next guys like jim morrison was there and um it just kind of fizzled out and then klaus is like all right well i guess i'll be a cab driver now yeah it's crazy it's crazy how it it works 10 years i mean i totally get it yeah actually (laughs) more than anybody yes you do (laughs) you absolutely get it yeah yeah it sometimes takes yeah after that he almost made it with magic terry and then it was 10 years until he joined dead kennedy's you know, that fizzled out in Boston eventually. And then after that, he spent a period of time back in blues artists like John Lee Hooker and Albert Collins, which is, you know, a That's cool amazing. gig. That's a great gig. Yeah. It's an awesome gig, but it wasn't what he wanted to do. Uh, and then he spent a lot of the 70s running a pirate radio station in Boston called WOMB, Womb Radio. <laughs> and he didn't really play a hell of a whole lot, not at least not live. But in 1977, he moved to San Francisco and saw a show at the Mabuhe featuring this band right here, the Zeros. And the Zeros reignited his love of live music. Yeah, he was he was watching them at the Mabue. He w- he went with his coworkers. He was like a temp in some office building, and his coworkers were like, "This thing is a joke." And Klaus was like, "Actually, no, no, this is great. This is the next shit." So after that show, Klaus saw Ray's ad in Bay Area Musician Magazine, known as BAM, uh, which most people in the scene read just for the ads and to make fun of the terrible music taste of the staff. <laughs> it was like, man, I tell you what, if you want some good music listening, you listen to Buzz Gags. <laughs> Wasn't great. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not familiar with Boz Gags. I don't know. <laughs> Klaus reached out to Ray, and although 
Klaus was a seasoned musician. The song he chose to see if he gelled with these other two dudes was a simple rock and roll classic by one of the forerunners of punk. That song was Peggy Sue by Buddy Holly. If you knew Peggy Sue, then you know why I feel blue without Peggy. My Peggy Sue. Oh, well, I love you, Gallus. I love you, Peggy Sue. Peggy Sue, Peggy Sue. Oh, how my heart yearns for you, oh, Peggy. Jello Biafra said, I only did Peggy Sue with Ray once. <laughs> just one time. Jello Biafra hates love songs. And he's just like, he just met this guy. And Klaus and East Bay Ray are like, all right, let's do Peggy Sue. And Jello's like, fine. I love you. <laughs> One time. <laughs> one time. One time and one time only. One time was enough for him. <laughs> so once these three were together, they recorded a tape with a temporary drummer and sent it to Dirk Dirksen at the Mabuhe, who also required a glossy photo of every band who wanted to play the venue. So Jello asked his friend Carlos Cadona, a.k.a. 6025, not 6025. I've been telling you all week. <laughs> you gotta do it right. <laughs> They asked 6025 to pose as the drummer in the band photo. And before Carlos knew it, Jello had asked him to be not the drummer, but the second guitarist in the band. Now, Jello had asked 6025 to be in the Dead Kennedys because 6025's previous band, the Mailmen, had disintegrated partly because the shit that 6025 wanted to do was just so goddamn weird. Fortunately, though, the Dead Kennedys would indulge in 6025's stranger impulses resulting in songs like Ill in the Head that would feature some of the most interesting moments of the Dead Kennedys' debut album. It's a bit difficult, but it's fucking, it's interesting. Yeah. I think, think Jello Biafra called it a wall, a wall of sound covered in graffiti. Yeah. No, I can see that. Now, what you probably noticed by now is that all these dudes have goofy fucking names. Like, <laughs> names that they've chosen themselves. 6025, Klaus Floride, Jello Biafra. And while some of those names had a point, others were chosen just because, hey, it fucking sounds cool. You mean like Carlos Cadona? <laughs> AKA 6025? Yep. Uh, found, uh, he just found a. Cl- it was from a clothing inspection ticket he found on the street. Yeah, six oh number six oh two five. I like that. Yeah, like something that means nothing means everything. Yeah. And then East Bay Ray, he well, he first called himself Ray Valium until Klaus told him a year later about like when they met by you know when Klaus answered the ad uh, that the ad said East Bay, you know the location and Ray his name. So Klaus thought 
his name was East Bay Ray. <laughs> and Ray thought, that's pretty cool. I'm gonna, actually, I'm going to keep that. Yeah, East Bay Ray is so much cooler than Ray Valium. <laughs> yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. God, so much better. Oh, yeah, East Bay Ray. And then Klaus Fluoride, he was, at first he was Floss Chloride. <laughs> but then he said his dyslexia just flipped it too many times, and he thought, you know what? Klaus Fluoride is even better because Cla- it, it's got a craft work kind of Germanic sound to it. Yeah, yeah. Klaus Fluoride's fucking great. Yeah. And then Jello Biafra. Of course. We're finally getting it. It's like, this is what Jello Biafra is all about. He said he picked his name randomly out of a notebook. And then he later explained that Jello being like, you know, the jiggly, sugary dessert consumed by many and enjoyed by few. Yeah. <laughs> and then, I'm sorry, I just don't like it. <laughs> Oh, that was your that was your criticism of Jello. I wrote this. <laughs> well, he he said that it was the uh, the perfect uh, useless American consumer product, or the perfect useless American consumer product. Uh, you know, it's. I mean, I'm saying I don't like the actual dessert. I know, I know okay. you don't. I know you hate Jello. Yes, <laughs> I don't particularly enjoy it either. Just make it pudding. <laughs> Sorry, it's for another time. <laughs> and then, so that that was Jello, and then Biafra being like a region in Nigeria that declared itself independent from Nigeria like uh, it, it, the the whole thing resulted in a two and a half year civil war which left over two million people dead by 1970 and the Nigerian government at that time blockaded people living in Biafra from getting food and medical supplies so many families including a lot of children starved to death as a result yeah so that's so it's something to fucking pay attention to exactly and I guarantee you, none. But I, I would be very surprised. Like, I, I, I would like to know like the percentage of people listening right now that even heard of Biafra, you know, or even knew that that was a fucking place at one point in time. Because you know, I didn't. I looked it up. Yeah, I, 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 I looked it up and I read all about it. Yeah. I, I had no idea. I mean, I knew it was one of those things, you know, like I knew it was like one of those things. But when I was a fucking kid, like I, I had no, I'd I, never I fucking know. heard of Biafra. No. I mean, like when we were growing up, it was more Ethiopia, unfortunately, yeah. going through through a mass starvation, which is like just awful. Yeah. And then Bruce Lessinger called himself Ted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bruce Lessinger. Yeah. Ted being the, the first drummer, the first real drummer. Yeah. And the t- dead Kennedys. Yeah. His name was just Ted. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And they just add, they added him on like the week before their first show. Yeah. But the most important name of all was the band name itself. Now, while it is arguably the greatest band name in punk rock history, the origins of the name are somewhat muddled. Yeah, well, Jello said, like, this, this is like a, this is the, his version of the story. He said it was suggested by two friends of his, separate friends. <laughs> Radio Pete, who was like a music writer and editor and band manager, uh, who briefly actually played with Question Mark and the Mysterious. No shit, 99 Tears, or 96 Tears. That's what he said. <laughs> anyway, so that's Radio Pete. And then Rick Stott, the guy who managed the Ravers that we talked about, <laughs> who opened for the Ramones, and later was the actually Dead Kennedy's band lawyer. Cool. Yeah, so Radio Pete... They're going to need those later. Oh, yeah. (laughs) A whole army of them. So Radio Pete, he said he came up with it in 1974 when his girlfriend came over to his place with a new teddy bear that she named Ted Kennedy. And he thought, okay, Ted, 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 Ted Kennedy. That's perfect. And then he wrote it down on his list of cool band names that everyone had at one point in their life. Of course. And then later, when he was in Boulder, Colorado, hanging out with Jello, he said, I have the coolest band name that I don't think anyone can use. It's called Dead Kennedys. And Jello's like, all right, let's go back to playing a record. Yeah. And then Rick, remember Rick Stott, the, the, the future lawyer of Dead Kennedys, he probably picked it up by reading about another band called the Dead Kennedys. <laughs> 
<laughs> they were not the first dead Kennedys. That's the thing. Je- Jello found out about this when one of his friends said, hey, that was a great interview you did at, at that one fanzine in Cleveland, the, the Cleaver, whatever. And he's like, what interview? And he figured out, fuck, there's another band called Dead Kennedys. Holy shit. So Jello wrote to a friend in Ohio uh, about the other Dead Kennedys. Like, is this okay? I didn't realize about this. And his friend said, like, yeah, don't worry about it. Those guys, they, they actually, they already changed their name because that name sucks. <laughs> ah, just kidding. It's because Booker's thought that name sucked. Yeah, yeah it's because Booker's are highly offended by that name. And they couldn't get any shows. <laughs> now they're called Duran Duran. Oh, I'm just, I'm such a kidder. I'm such a kidder. <laughs> the reason why Dead Kennedys is such a perfect name for this band was because the death of the Kennedys themselves represented the death of the American dream for a lot of people. And that's if it even existed in the first place. Or, excuse me. And that's if it even existed <laughs> in the first place. The name was not only in bad taste, but good bad taste, but it was obviously angry and evocative with a dash of humor. Because at the end of the day, it's a really fucking funny name. Like, Dead Kennedys is such a funny name for a band. Yeah. Plus, Dead Kennedys caught people's attention. Because naming your band Dead Kennedys in 1978 would be like naming your band fucking Muhammad Atta in 2015. Or fucking naming an 1880 ragtime group Mary Todd's Hilarious Grief. It's going <laughs> to piss people off. That's perfect. That would go great on a poster. Why don't we just do it now? <laughs> but as the Cleveland Dead Kennedys found out, pissing people off was hard work. And while neither Ray nor Klaus were really all that jazzed on the name because of the obvious problems it was going to present, Jello had other plans. Yeah, so that's the thing. When Jello Biafra brought the name Dead Kennedys, because remember, he just like told Carlos 6025, just join the band. Like he's just making all these decisions left <laughs> and right. <laughs> Ray and Klaus, like they immediately objected. They're like, no, that can't work at all. And that's when Jello thought this could work. Yeah. So Jello went around telling everyone he knew in the scene, like Negative Trend, the Dills, anyone. He's like, yeah, uh, we have a new band now. It's great. It's, they're called the Dead Kennedys. And so obviously after a while, Ray and Klaus is like, wow, everyone now knows. Yeah. So it's too late now. So now that that, that is who we are. Yeah. 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 He fucking forced it and it was the right decision. <laughs> and so with arguably the greatest name at punk rock at the ready, the Dead Kennedys were ready to begin one of the fastest ascents into greatness yet seen in the history of the genre. And that's where we'll pick back what? up for part two. Ah. You knew that was coming. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, is going to be a four-part series, most likely, uh, because one, uh, Fresh Fruit for Riding Vegetables, the debut album, is one of both both of us, one of our favorite albums of uh, all fucking time. We we love it, and yeah. we're falling in love Plastic with this album. Surgery. Yeah, we're falling in love with this album. We're falling in love with all of their albums all over again. You know, revisiting these and looking at them with fresh eyes. So we really want to like. We just want to tell the whole fucking story, and it's also just a great story. Yeah. The San Francisco scene is is very it's underreported. Uh, it isn't talked about a hell of a whole lot, and and we believe that it's a scene that deserves a, a more of a spotlight. Absolutely. I mean, we barely touched on it. We only just had a few bands that we had talked about that there were hundreds of bands going on uh, forming breaking up and just coming together like there was there was so much to do so we're going to try to cover as much as humanly possible because yeah that is important that is part of the whole punk ethos anyways yeah it really is 
So here at the end of the show, we want first we want to thank somebody. We want to thank the people over at Drastic Plastic. Thank you uh, for sending us a, a couple of sweet fucking reissues of uh, the Cramps' first two oh, albums. So cool, yeah. It's so cool. They're great reissues. They're uh, and, and it's not just an an ad. It's just, just thank you. They're great. Yeah, I mean Drastic, they just gave it to us. That's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, Drastic Plastic. They've got a, a ton of great reissues, and we're also going to be working with them to do like a giveaway here pretty soon, uh, where you know like follow if, us on if Instagram. You're the ninth caller. Yeah, if you're the ninth, like <laughs> that's not gonna work. That's, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Like I was talking, it's like, man, how do we do? If you're the ninth caller, because I used to do that shit all the time on radio, and it was the most <laughs> fun thing I did. It's like, yeah, caller number eighty-eight. You never got to eighty-eight, uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, caller number eight usually on eighty-eight point one. But yeah, we're gonna do uh, a giveaway to to give you guys uh, some uh, cramps reissues. So you know, check out our Instagrams for when you know when we're gonna be doing all that bullshit. Uh, if you're not terribly bored with Instagram like I am. <laughs> uh, and we also want to say don't forget uh, to support your local record stores. Record Store Day is coming up. Uh, it's on August 29th. Uh, and a lot. check out to see how your record store, your local record store, is uh, going to be doing uh, their Record Store Day. I know every store is going to be doing it differently. Myself, my record store is Record Grouch uh, here in our neighborhood. It's my favorite record store in all of New York City. So be sure to support your local record store. And there's a lot of really cool shit coming out this year. Uh, so, uh, yeah, don't Absolutely. forget. It's coming up. And also, like, if you're playing music and, and you're hanging out or and you recorded something and, and maybe, and maybe you want to have us play it at the end of one of our episodes, like, we would be honored. We would absolutely be honored. So... Uh, if you want to send any kind of, uh, you know, Spotify or links or whatever, YouTube, whatever you got, uh, Bandcamp, uh, send them to nodogsinspace at gmail.com or uh, not just band submissions. If you want to just write to us or anything at all whatsoever, any questions, comments, whatever, uh, nodogsinspace at gmail.com. And then uh, we will play uh, a song yeah. at, at the end of the episode because we got one. Yep, we got one. This I've is been telling you this for weeks. You have been. This is this is one you've been pumping, and uh, you know I finally got to listen to them. They're fucking great. Called, yeah. Uh, very serious. Uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to explain. It's it's very funny. Yeah. It's very depressive and very funny. Yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoy it. I, I think uh, they're very great. Yeah. Oh shit! Next week. What? Oh, we forgot to say what we Fuck. were gonna. Okay. 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 And one more thing before we get to uh, real pain. Uh, next week, what we're going to be doing, next week's vacation week. We need a fucking vacation. We're constantly working. We don't ever stop. We need a summer vacation. Every other person in this fucking world gets a vacation. We need a vacation. I, you know, I didn't leave the apartment for two days. Yeah. Two days. Yes, two days working on this. Yeah, so so yeah, we, we work hard and we, we need to take a vacation. So, you know, we're taking a va No Dogs is taking a vacation. Last podcast but on the left is taking a vacation. There's good news. There's good news is that we did finally figure out how to do a short, easy episode. <laughs> Next week, uh, we're going to be talking about the new release of uh, the Stooges concert at Goose Lake. In 1970, we're going to be talking about the concert. We're going to be talking about uh, the the circumstances surrounding it and all of the myths that, you know, this legendary recording busted. Yeah, we're pretty much making an amendment from uh, our episode three of the Stooges from obviously from lots of sources and lots of books that told us this. And then now we're starting to find out. That, that's not exactly so. So we need to talk about that. We absolutely need to talk about that. So so that's what will be uh, next week. And uh, 
part two of uh, the Dead Kennedys will be out in two weeks. Uh, so thank you all very much for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you all soon. Goodbye. Here's Very Serious. Enjoy it. Goodbye. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.